Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. I'm Dave Robinson. On that, you've got Reliance. We start with Scott Miller. He's our astronomical bard. He watches the twinkling things in the heavens, the stars, and planets, and meteors that fly. Now he's going to tell us what we can see in the night sky. Scott here. October has arrived with cooler temperatures and darker skies earlier in the evening than in summer months. As I step out on my front porch a little after 8 p.m., the Big Dipper can be found low in the northwestern sky. The Big Dipper is a bit of a challenge and remains that way over the next few months. Stars that make it up are easily hidden from view by objects on the horizon. But moving around a bit allows me to find it. The seven stars that make up the Big Dipper look much like a cooking pot sitting on the stove at this time of the year, with four stars making up its bowl and three more in a bent line making up the handle. The two pointer stars mark the front side of the Dipper's bowl. These are used to find the North Star Polaris. Start with the bottom of those two stars and draw a line through the upper star and beyond it about five to six times. That leads us to Polaris. Polaris has the distinction of not appearing to move throughout the night. All the other stars in the sky seem to move about it over the course of the night. And this is true throughout the year, providing a permanent marker for the direction north. Polaris is part of a group of stars, asterism in science speak, called the Little Dipper. It does in fact mark the end of the handle of the Little Dipper. In the early evening skies of October, one sees two more stars have finished the handle up and to the left of Polaris. If the skies are dark enough, no washout from city lights, beyond those three are four stars in the shape of a box that, together with the handle, finish the Little Dipper. A quick 180 puts south in front of me, and two planets are found there, Jupiter and Saturn. Saturn is higher up and about southeast in the sky. To its left and almost around to the east, or a bit south of east, is Jupiter. Jupiter is the brighter of the two. These two have been trailing each other night after night across the southern skies, and both outshine many of the stars, making for easy targets for the eyes. A good pair of binoculars or small telescope, if either is handy, can provide more detail. An additional planet may clear the horizon around 11.30 in the evening, depending on the local horizon. We are catching up with the planet Mars in our faster orbit, and as we get closer, it will get brighter and rise earlier in the evening. We will catch it later in early December, but for now, a late evening visit is available to us. For comparison, note when it is visible now. By month's end, it is visible about an hour earlier. High overhead, as darkness falls, is the Summer Triangle. Like the Big Dipper and the Little Dipper, the Summer Triangle is an asterism. It is made of three bright stars of three different constellations. The westernmost is Vega, in the constellation Lyra the Harp. The eastern star is Deneb, in Cygnus the Swan. The southern star is Altair, in Aquila the Eagle. It is located a bit above and to the right of Jupiter and Saturn, but not as bright as those two. Over in the north 
eastern sky, the W-shaped pattern of stars known as Cassiopeia can be found. Cassiopeia is supposed to be a queen sitting on her throne, but she may be a bit on her head in this configuration. The southern part of the W, along with dimmer stars nearby, that make the box shape of the seat of the throne, while the two northern stars of the W are its back. Just below Cassiopeia, one might find a square of stars all of about the same brightness. This is a great square of Pegasus, another asterism. It makes up the body of that winged horse. The legs, neck, and head are made of dimmer stars. I will fill in the horse in a later episode when it's higher in the eastern sky. There is a meteor shower that peaks later in October, the Orionid meteor shower. It peaks overnight the evening of October 20th and early morning hours of October 21st. Meteor showers are generally times that we pass through the path of a comet, sweeping up debris along the orbit left behind by the comet on previous passages around the sun. In the case of the rounded meteor shower, the contributor of debris is Comet Halley, one of the most famous comets known. The moon rises around 4 a.m. on the 21st, so it may not interfere much in the meteor count. October skies, with its earlier darkness and crisper temperatures, beckon us with lots to see, planets, meteors, and constellations aplenty. A good time to leave couch potato mode and enjoy the wonders of the night sky. Next, it's Rob Weber and Rebecca Pichet talking about DNA that just won't go away. It's in the water. They will tell you in candor. It's the gleanings of semi-aquatic salamander. Hi, it's Rob Weber with the Kentucky Academy of Science. We're joined today by Rebecca Pichet, a student at Asbury University who studies biology, and Rebecca was among the student winners for research she presented at last year's Kentucky Academy of Science annual meeting. Now her research focused on salamanders, and one of the challenges of studying salamanders is that these critters like to hide. But part of her research dealt with a way where she could study them even when they weren't around by studying their eDNA, the bits of DNA they leave behind in their environment. She's here to tell us about this and more. Rebecca, welcome to Bench Talk. Thank you. Rebecca, could you start by telling us a bit about what you were hoping to find out through the research you've conducted? Yeah, of course. So my research focused on comparing two methods of salamander detection in small lodic systems here in central and eastern Kentucky. So pretty much what my research was trying to determine is which method of salamander detection is the best way, whether it's with time or money or just accuracy in general. So I focused on just two methods, a more traditional method and then a more method that's newer to the industry right now. So tell me a bit about these methods. What's the traditional versus the the more modern way? So the traditional method that I used um, was using leaf litter bags. And these are essentially mesh bags that are placed in streams at certain intervals. So I placed six leaf litter bags per stream. And you go back every couple of weeks and then you'll actually go through those bags manually and determine what kind of salamander larvae have accumulated in those bags. 
And then from there, you will identify those salamander larvae. And this is compared to eDNA, which is the more modern method. And eDNA stands for environmental DNA. And its method is just going through those same streams and taking water samples and then running those water samples through a variety of different laboratory procedures and being able to tell what kind of DNA is present in those. And then through different bioinformatics, being able to determine what species specifically are present in those habitats. So what kind of thought went into developing your research question? My lab has previously done some research with eDNA, especially because it's taking off so fast in the scientific community. Um, A student before me focused on in the laboratory procedures with fish. And so I decided to go a step further and take that into the field and test that on salamanders, especially because they're so threatened during this time and amphibians in general need some attention right now as far as conservation goes. So so walk me through your research. Mm-hmm. So this is a two semester long research project. So last semester during the fall semester, I focused mainly on the first method, which is the leaf litter bags. So it was a five month process. So what I did is every two weeks, I would go to a couple streams in Madison County and go through, I was sampling three streams total. So I would go through each leaf litter bag in all of those streams and then go through those salamander larvae and write down what species they were. And at that same time, I was also collecting water samples to be used for eDNA, which I'm going to complete this semester in the lab. So I have already filtered through all those water samples. I have all the DNA. I just need to run it through the PCR and then see what kind of results pop up with that and then kind of compare the two methods as far as accuracy. So Rebecca, could you tell me a bit about these qPCR tests? I I think a lot of people have become more familiar with PCR tests because they hear that in relation to COVID-19 tests. Could you tell me a bit more about what these quantitative PCR tests are? Okay, so PCR stands for polymerase chain reaction. And quantitative PCR just takes a step further Pretty much what PCR is, is taking a segment of DNA and being able to amplify that by reproducing more and more of that DNA until we can measure that. So quantitative PCR not only tells us what kind of DNA is present in a sample, but also how much DNA is present in a sample. And I've been able to use this with my research by taking those water samples and running it through qPCR and being able to determine what kind of DNA from certain salamanders that we are testing for is present. And by doing that, I can also tell how much of that DNA is present. So I can compare different species and be able to determine which species are more abundant based on what the quantitative PCR results show. So, so far, what what have been the results? What have you found out? So with the leaf litter bags, I found out that there is one main genus of salamanders within these streams that I've sampled. And that is Eurecia, which actually is a whole genus. So the problem that I'm having right now, or is the challenges I'm having right now, is determining what species specifically. So there's two species within the Eurecia genus, and that's Southern Two Line and Cave. So right now I'm going to be using the eDNA and some other colleagues to figure out what species specifically. What other challenges popped up during your research? So specifically with determining what kind of species specifically the larvae were was harder than I expected. When they're adults, salamanders are really easy to distinguish between species, but when they're larvae, they all look the same. They're all the same size and color. So 
at first I was a little bit worried, but this actually ended up being a good thing because I was able to kind of collaborate with some colleagues. Like I said, I had my coworker come into the field and she was able to take really good pictures of those. So I can send them out to other experts in the field and kind of collaborate with other scientists to determine that. So we overcame those challenges, but at first they, they were a little worrisome. So tell me about these salamanders. They're, they're pretty elusive. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, they are. It depends on the species. One of the species that's really common, the Southern two-line salamander, usually if you go out into the field, you can find them. If you look pretty hard, other ones, I haven't seen the whole five months that I was sampling. So yeah, some of them can be very elusive. And what are some of the main benefits of studying these salamanders? You, do you learn not only about the salamanders, but also about the environment? Exactly. Yeah. So like I said, amphibians are really, really threatened right now especially salamanders specifically because of a lot of habitat loss they're experiencing, especially here in Kentucky. And so being able to kind of survey those streams and be able to determine what kind of salamanders are present and what salamanders aren't more specifically present is really useful. And this can even be used to determine stream health because salamanders can tell us how healthy a stream is or what kind of nutrients is lacking in a certain stream. And this research is ongoing. Is that correct? Yes, I finish up this semester after I am done running everything through the lab, and then we'll have our official um, results. I'm curious about these salamanders. Just how elusive are they? Did you did you spot any during your research? Mm-hmm. So I only spotted one species during my research, and that is the southern two-line salamander, which is really abundant here in Kentucky and also in some other states. So I wasn't super surprised to find that. And I also saw that reflected in my leaf litter bag and my eDNA results. The other species that I was expecting to see were the northern red salamander and the northern dusky salamander, as well as the cave salamander. But I didn't see any of these, despite finding larvae and seeing some eDNA results. So they can be pretty elusive. These are even the most common species of salamanders. So the ones that I didn't test for um, can be even more elusive, such as hellbenders or some other kinds of salamanders only specific to this region of Kentucky. What do you enjoy more, doing your field work or being in a lab? That's a really good question. So going into this, I was super excited for the field work and almost dreading the lab work. And I did like the field work better, but the lab work was actually really interesting because I was able to kind of use problem solving skills when it came to laboratory protocols and procedures. And it was really rewarding to be able to figure something out and then see results come from that. Um, So I enjoyed the lab work a lot more than I thought I would. And the field work was really interesting. It was just me out there in the streams. (laughs) So it was some good time to just be able to appreciate nature as well as get some of my research done. And of course, I really like salamanders and all kinds of animals that I saw there, like snakes. So it was really fun to just experience that as well. Now, how did you initially get interested in biology? So I've always been interested in animals ever since I was young. It's pretty common. If anyone asks me what I want to do when I grow up, I would just tell something with animals, whether it was a vet or a zoologist or a scientist. And recently through my undergrad research, I've figured out that there is a perfect combination of my passion with science and animals, and that's ecological research. So I've been able to combine my my passion of science and animals and be able to turn that into something that can benefit the scientific community. And so through studying biology, I'm able to complete that. Okay. And so you have graduation coming up in May and Mm -hmm. you're developing all these these talents based on your, your interests. What do you hope to do in the future? 
So right now I'm actually applying to a bunch of grad schools um, and I hope to go on to get my master's or my PhD in some kind of ecological research. So right now, the main goal is California for marine biology. So we'll see where that leads me. Well, Rebecca, congratulations for coming up with such a good research project and presenting it so well at the Kentucky Academy of Sciences annual meeting. We appreciate you joining us on Bench Talk. Thank you so much. This time, Rob Weber talks to Austin Minton about searching the bacterial dominion. Carrying out all sorts of diagnostics, this student from Kentucky Wesleyan is looking for important antibiotics. This is Rob Weber with the Kentucky Academy of Science, and I am joined by Austin Minton, a student at Kentucky Wesleyan College, and he was a student winner for a presentation he gave in the microbiology section at the Kentucky Academy of Sciences 2021 annual meeting. His research is entitled Analysis of Purified Extracts from Antibiotic Producing Bacterial Isolates. Before we get into your research, could you tell our listeners how big of a problem we face with bacterial resistance to antibiotics? Well, it, it is a big deal. Like I've been uh, executing this research for about three years now, and I've given a bunch of presentations. And it's such a big deal that from the first presentation I gave about two, two and a half years ago to now, I've actually, of course, had to change my data as far as the numbers of acquired antibiotic resistant illnesses yearly, and then as well as the deaths annually as well. So as of right now, from what I've seen, around 23,000 deaths each year are caused due to these antibiotic-resistant illnesses. And these numbers continually increase. I mean, it's an exponential increase. It's huge. So this, this field and this type of research is a big deal. And scientists are hoping that one of the solutions to this challenge could be found in the soil under our feet. Could you please tell our listeners why that's the case? So as far as isolating soil, soil bacteria, it's fairly easy to begin with. And then just the fact that what we have seen in the soil is quite outstanding, how we can isolate this soil bacteria and put it to the test against these certain pathogens like E. coli and Staphylococcus epidermidis and see that they actually produce antibiotics effective against them. So starting at this point is it kind of opens the field to not just professional researchers, but undergraduate students and even high schoolers as well. So could you give an overview of your research project? So basically what I did was I was introduced to this research project in a general biology course. And then I was given the opportunity to pursue this by a uh, biology professor here, Dr. Rachel Pritchard. And I have pursued this for about three years now, as I stated. And basically what I did was, is I started with 21 bacterial isolates from a past medical microbiology class. So I took their notebooks, uh, you know, found, saw where they found all this stuff at, uh, collected that data, and then furthered this into testing for their antibiotic resistance and doing some biochemical testing and then some qualitative analysis. And from there, I lowered it down to about 13 isolates that actually produced these broad spectrum antibiotics effective against gram positive and gram negative bacteria. And from there, I'm 
performing extraction protocols to see if I can actually isolate this antibiotic producing compound and put this to the test in the medical field, testing against like eukaryotic cells and such. How did you develop your research question? So as far as my research question, I started pretty broad. So basically just saying, how can these soil samples in Kentucky actually contribute to the global effort of combating antibiotic resistance? And then from there, I have basically tried to condense in a little bit and focusing on one particular isolate that produced antibiotics effective against seven of these nine pathogens that I've really worked with and seeing if I can take it and actually apply it to the medical field directly and see if it produce antibiotics effective against this bacteria while also, you know, not affecting eukaryotic cells. So it can actually be used as antibiotics rather than just killing everything on a plate. Was there anything particularly interesting about your methods or did you face challenges that required you to get creative? So starting out, there wasn't a whole lot of issues other than just seeing that a lot of these isolates lost their antibiotic producing capabilities in the freezer because they were in there for about a year before I actually got out of them and actually proceeded. So that was sort of upsetting to see that only 13 of the 21 actually proceeded with that. When I got to PCR and gelatophoresis and PCR on the 16SR RNA gene, I found that there was one particular isolate that I just could not get a successful PCR out of. And it was, it was a unique isolate because it grew purple on the auger plate, which was really interesting. And from there, I had to use a DNA cleanup kit and then an anadrop to test these purified nucleic uh, material. And I ended up getting a successful PCR out of that. So that was one sort of roadblock that I was able to get past. Most recently in my extraction methods with this one particular isolate, I cannot seem to get these zones of inhibition to show some sort of dosage dependency, as well as I'm seeing that this control drop, which is a methanol drop for the spread spot method that I'm using, is also inhibiting growth of these escape pathogens, as they're called. So just trying to alter the extraction methods. We've tried a few different things so far using different solvents and changing the steps as far as either putting the pathogen on the plate first and then the drops or the drops first and then the pathogen first, just trying to get past that. So that's a that's the current hiccup that we're facing. So you're continuing to work on that? Oh, 100%. Yeah, it's it's a full-time job now at this point. I understand you had some guidance in how you approached your research due to its connection with the Tiny Earth Network. Could you please tell our listeners about Tiny Earth? So Tiny Earth, their goal for the Tiny Earth Initiative, as it's called, is to steer more undergraduate researchers in the direction of antibiotic research, as well as just exposing them to research as a whole. Because I mean, it's a re- I feel like it's a really big and important experience of undergraduate studies. And basically what they've done is, is that they shared this protocol with many institutions, including, like I said, high school and undergraduate institutions. And they implement these in the many general biology courses. In your general biology courses, you typically just are exposed to the very beginning of these protocols where you basically get to your biochemical testing, and your PCR angiolipheresis. Whereas when I took this as my own independent research, I furthered this into extraction protocols and trying to test this against eukaryotic cells and do some structural characterization with some uh, chemistry methods. So that's kind of where I'm at and what they strive to do. What did you find most surprising in your research process or results? 
So myself, you know, prior to starting research, uh, I was very new to the field and just seeing that I can take soil from below our feet and grow it on a plate and see that it can inhibit growth of pathogens such as staph epi and E. coli, these really dangerous uh, illness causing bacteria was very surprising to me. And then seeing that even though only 13 of the 21 isolates that I started with actually showed this antibiotic production, there were numerous that showed this broad spectrum antibiotic production. So that was probably the biggest surprise for me. So I understand your research was impacted by the pandemic. Could you tell me a bit about that? Yeah. So I began extraction protocols about a year ago. And right as I did my organic extraction, KWC, Tech Wilson College, went completely virtual. So, of course, I had no access to the lab. So my dried samples were just sitting in simulation vials in the fridge. And I really wasn't able to gain access to those till about a year after. So with that, the extraction protocols that I'm doing now is more of a comparison to these dried extracts from about a year ago to what I've just done now and just seeing if there's a difference there. So it really, it's kind of slowed things down. I probably would be much further into altering the extraction methods because I assume I would probably be encountering the same issues I am now with control drop inhibiting growth as well. And it's just really kind of slowed things down, but it's recovering at this point in time. What are some of the next steps in this area of research that you want to keep your eye on? So the next steps, I'm really big into biomedicine. I'm a biology and chemistry double major. So my connections with the chemistry department here, I would like to do some sort of structural characterization of this antibiotic producing compound. And also, like I said, do some eukaryotic cell testing to see if, you know, this might be effective against uh, E. coli, but if this also inhibits growth or kills these eukaryotic cells, you obviously can't use it as an effective antibiotic. So trying to actually test the medical efficacy of these antibiotic producing compounds is my main future goal in, in this experimentation as a whole. How did you initially get interested in microbiology? So actually, Dr. Rachel Pritchard, my mentor, kind of got me into this. So I applied to Kentucky Wesleyan as a mathematics and chemistry double major. So I actually was not even in the biology field to begin with, and then sort of taught myself out of math and got myself into biology. And I actually took a microbiology course, and she was a professor of that. And when she talked me into starting this research, I was kind of hesitant. I, it was more of just, well, you know, this is something I can put on a grad school application or a med school application. And then seeing that, you know, what impact that I can have as an undergraduate student on this global issue of antibiotic resistance really drove me to continue this for almost three years now. And going from there, kind of convincing me to almost transition from med schools to grad schools and kind of opened my view of what I want to do after college and just falling in love with the research and the lab experience as a whole. So what is next for you uh, or what are your future plans for your your studies, your research, your, your future professional career? So initially I was, I've always been dead set on medical school. I wanted to, you know, go to MD school, treat patients. And this research has kind of, like I said, I've fallen in love with the lab and being in the lab. And this has sort of transitioned my sort of interest into grad schools, like PhD programs, specifically uh, pharmacology and toxicology, and then also just microbiology and immunology programs as well. So I'm working on those as I speak. 
Well, you're obviously looking into some, some big issues and, and putting your talents to use in a way that's that's going to serve people well. I appreciate your taking the time to, to share with us today. Thank you. I appreciate it. It's been great. have it thanks one and all science fills in some gaps but opens up others big and small but it keeps us modest it keeps us pious you've been listening to bench talk the week in science